Hi, I'm Dave Reinerman. Welcome back to the Marvels of Science, a podcast about the science and tech of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. In season uh, phase two of the show, we'll look at all your favorite heroes and villains from Thanos and Falcon to the Winter Soldier and Tony Stark. Speaking of Iron Man, today's topic is Tony's PTSD. Maybe. Here with me to figure out if it's reasonable to diagnose a fictional character at all is Kelsey Myers, our science expert today. Kelsey is a trauma-informed therapist, speaker, consultant, and writer. Welcome to the podcast, Kelsey. Hi, thanks for having me. And our color commentator is the first returning guest on the show. You'll know her from episode three, Ultron and the Internet, before I started trying to get clever with the names. Caitlin Levine. Thanks for coming back, Caitlin. Thanks for having me a second time. I'm so tickled by the idea that they might know me from the previous phase. You're you're famous. <laughs> I imagine that this episode is going to be a bit more serious than some of the others. Some listeners may be able to relate all too well to the topic at hand. And I want to say that if you'd rather not listen to a podcast episode about how people process their trauma and other things like that, I do not blame you. Go ahead and skip this one. Come back next week for the episode on artificial intelligence. I mean, I hope that's the episode. I haven't recorded it yet. Another caveat. This episode is about psychology, a science that straddles the line between hard science and social science. Caitlin, here's a question you could write a book on if you wanted to. What is science? And do you think the social sciences should be called sciences? I don't really know what I believe, like in my heart, the answer to this question is, but I guess that maybe science could be defined as something that can be measured and study. I think I think science is a broad term that can include social behavior and, and that sort of thing. Sure. I think sometimes there's a tendency for us to try to make it too broad because we don't want to exclude things. I'm not sure. Kelsey, do you have any thoughts on that? Can we call psychology a science? Yeah, I think when I was considering that idea, what I came to was um, the idea that science is rooted in the scientific method. And uh, there's a lot in the field of psychology that is very much rooted in the scientific method. So entire careers and schools, et cetera, that are doing evidence-based research and have done hundreds of thousands of studies that are replicated um, with regard to human behavior, neurobiology, and the like. So I I would give a resounding yes, um, but I'm also a little biased. So. <laughs> I am of the same opinion. In my view, science is the method that we use to to test our assumptions about the world. People and their behaviors are part of that world, and we can make predictions about their behaviors and the reasons behind them, so I think it counts. Maybe the error margins are probably higher than in, say, physics, but that shouldn't be a disqualification. But if you, if anybody out there listened to my phase one recap, where I got on quite the soapbox about science, that'll give you my opinion on it. Soapbox aside for now, this one has a good amount of setup, so buckle up. At the end of the first proper team-up movie in the MCU, The Avengers, Tony Stark, Iron Man himself, makes a sacrifice play, despite what Captain America says about him. You're not the guy to make the sacrifice play, to lay down on a wire and let the other guy crawl over you. He diverts a nuclear missile up through a tear in space, away from Midtown Manhattan, and toward the bad guy's spaceships. He does this assuming he's not going to make it back, through the power of friendship and the Incredible Hulk yelling at him. What the hell? He survives the experience, but not without a cost. He returns in Iron Man 3, which sees him battling a fire-breathing Guy Pierce, and the trauma 
that he experienced in the Avengers. First, we're going to talk about what panic attacks and PTSD are, and then we're going to touch on whether or not it's possible or appropriate to diagnose a fictional character. I'd also like to get your opinions, Caitlin and Kelsey, on how depictions of mental illness in fiction can harm or help those who actually experience them. Caitlin, I imagine you're somewhat more comfortable talking about this topic than the inner workings of the internet. Despite being family, I'm not 100% sure what it is you do. You studied social work, though, right? Yes, I did. And I do feel I am by no means (laughs) an expert on PTSD, but I can tell you I feel 1,000 times more confident talking about this than I do about the internet. Your Willy Wonka (laughs) analogy, though, was on point for the internet. Thank you. Kelsey, before we get into Tony's specifics, can we get a couple of definitions first? What is PTSD? What differentiates it from, say, recalling an unpleasant memory? So PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And I think first, it would be really helpful to define trauma in general. And trauma is uh, the emotional and also embodied spontaneous protective mechanism that we use as humans to thwart ongoing damage. So when our body feels a threat of some kind, what we experience in the aftermath of that is the trauma that then colors our behaviors and our experiences in the future. So post-traumatic stress symptoms are biologically based. A lot of people think that they're just emotional. They're biologically based and they are somatically experienced, meaning we don't have them outside of our body. Uh, not just something we think about, not just something that's abstract and floating around out there. Uh, PTSD is the disorder that sometimes is produced by the events that cause trauma responses in our bodies. So it interrupts our activities of daily living in a distressing way. Uh, I think the other thing that's also helpful to know is that as therapists, we use something called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. And the diagnostic criteria for PTSD is significant. Recalling an unpleasant memory is something that everyone has experienced. We've all experienced something like, you know, increased heart rate or maybe even sweating as a result of thinking about something that's unpleasant. But there are really specific diagnostic criteria that must be in place in order for someone to have a diagnosis of PTSD. So this is a little bit of an oversimplification, but rather than reading to you from the DSM-5. That's the wheelhouse this podcast lives in, so perfect. (laughs) I'm just going to give you some of the categories. The first category is this idea of intrusive or repeated memories. And the specifics of those are that it feels like those memories are happening right now. So neurobiologically, the body is experiencing the same flood of neurotransmitters, adrenaline, etc., as if it were happening right now. The second category is avoidance. So avoidance of places, memories, people, anything that would remind the individual of the event. The third category are changes in mood and memory. So we often see people who have trouble with short-term memory will see an increase in fear or distrust of others that they previously trusted. We'll see a lot of self-blame, numbing, detachment. And then the fourth category are changes in arousal and reactivity. So this is where we would see trouble sleeping, trouble concentrating, someone who's easily startled or maybe has irritable or angry outbursts. And it takes a lot 
to meet this criteria. So there are specifics, there's a specific number of criteria that need to be met in each category. And so it's kind of a, you know, the sexy term that floats around in pop culture, but it takes a lot of significant distress and disruption to a person's daily life for us to give that diagnosis. So within each category, there are sort of sub-criteria or like numbers of of disruptions, for instance. Yep. But it's still a combo, like you're looking for all four of those before you might diagnose? That's absolutely right. So each of those individually might be familiar to a lot of people. Yeah, and it's usually linked to a specific event, though we also have an understanding that there is complex PTSD as well, which might result in something more like um, an ongoing abusive relationship in a caretaking role as a child or things like that. So there's some nuances there as well. And only because they bring it up in Iron Man 3, for the second definition, what are anxiety attacks and or panic attacks, if there's a difference there? How do we differentiate those from just being anxious and panicking? What's the attack part there? So they are related to panic disorders. And again, there's diagnostic criteria in the DSM-5 for this. Um, So there's two categories of panic disorder and uh, of panic attacks within panic disorder. And so those are expected or unexpected. Expected panic attacks would be, for example, a fear of flying. There's a predictable trigger when I get on a plane, I might experience something like that. Then there's unexpected, and there appears to be no apparent trigger. We know that there is one, right, because the body's being cued to something, but we just can't pinpoint what that is, and they seem to come out of the blue. And you need at least four of the following symptoms to be classified for a panic attack. And there are a few of these that I saw um, Tony exhibit, and we can talk more about those, but palpitations, pounding heart, accelerated heart rate, sweating, trembling or shaking, sensations of shortness of breath or feeling like you're being smothered, a feeling of choking, chest pain or discomfort, nausea or abdominal distress, feeling dizzy, unsteady, lightheaded or faint, feeling of an unreality. So we call it derealization or being detached from oneself, like a depersonalization, fear of losing control or going crazy, fear of dying, that sense of doom, numbness or tingling sensations, paresthesias, And then there's chills or hot flushes. We need at least four of those. And after each panic attack, there needs to be a report of a fear of another panic attack for at least a month. So it's not just about the panic attack within that disorder. It is the fear of ongoing panic attacks that's now disrupting your life. Now that we have an idea of what we're talking about, let's talk movies. In Iron Man 3, we see... Tony exhibiting some behaviors that to the viewer seems are supposed to seem troubling. Some of the things that I would call his symptoms with all my expertise (laughs) include, and these now sound familiar, staying awake for 72 hours straight, he says. Sounds bad. Obsessing about his work, trouble breathing, a racing heart rate when the events of New York are mentioned. Some I picked up on on this last watch was negatively reacting to his friend when he tries to help. First, before we get into the details of those, is it fair to call these symptoms or is that is that too strong of a word, too medical of a word, symptoms? You know, I would say that in terms of the kind of 
spectrum of practitioners that use diagnostic criteria on the regular versus those who do not, I generally tend toward not necessarily discussing diagnostic criteria with my clients. I mean, in order to get covered by insurance, you need a diagnosis code, all of those things. But I tend toward seeing my clients, seeing them as a strengths-based human sitting in front of me and not a list of symptoms. The caveat there is when we're dealing with trauma and we're dealing with the potential of things like dissociation, uh, there are there's the possibility of re-traumatizing a client. I do tend to look more at diagnostic criteria and uh, work to identify exactly what the person sitting in front of me is experiencing. So this is kind of a an exception to the way that I generally operate as a practitioner. They definitely allude in the movie to him experiencing some sort of panic episode, right? And in my opinion, I mean, yes, fictitious character, but what he went through, right, assuming that he would die, that's that's a seriously traumatic experience to go through. And so it would not be a stretch for me to think that Tony was having symptoms of some kind. I'll say the other thing too, um, specifically with a panic disorder or with PTSD, we look at the early childhood traumas of a person that's coming in for that treatment. And so I also happen to know that Tony has some early childhood trauma as well and losing his parents suddenly. And so the chances of him developing something like that, he's kind of already predisposed. In terms of diagnosing a fictitious character, I, I I would feel more confident with him than others. That's kind of amazing that you know so much about his history. That I have actually not watched Iron Man 3, and those were some of my big questions. Like in hearing you talk about the diagnostic criteria, I remember that something else is like the duration of symptoms, that like it would, right. wouldn't it be like acute stress or something if it's less than a certain number of months or weeks? But right. to hear, I mean, I know nothing about Tony Stark's um, childhood, <laughs> but to know that he has these, like, I guess you would call them adverse childhood experiences, and then coupled with a long period of time where he is showing symptoms, like, I don't think it's, like, a stretch to to potentially argue that he would meet diagnostic criteria for this disorder. Right. Caitlin, that leads into my next question for you, actually. When you watch a movie and you see a character behaving in ways that would make you concerned if they were a real person, do you see those as like worrisome behaviors or more just like storytelling devices? I guess, I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends on how realistic the rest of the storyline is. <laughs> and in the Marvel universe, you know, you're looking at a lot of realism. So, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, my understanding is like Tony Stark. I mean, didn't he like battle aliens and stuff? So, I mean, knowing that this is like completely fictional, obviously, I don't like feel sad or worried for him. But I mean, you know, I'm a, a rather empathetic person and only having watched the trailer for Iron Man like there was a little bit of like you know like I can't get this out of my head and stuff and like that is that is sad and disturbing sure and like not not an unreal scenario for somebody who actually has endured combat or other trauma you know obviously not just battling aliens or real real combat yeah the um what I've liked about the two series that Marvel's put out um WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier is they both have elements of like them dealing with the emotional trauma of these insane events. WandaVision in particular is her reacting to her grief. And there are scenes in Falcon and Winter Soldier where they are in therapy. Mm -hmm. They are in like cognitive behavioral therapy. And if anybody could have 
benefited from that in the MCU. It's Tony Stark who starts his story by getting kidnapped by terrorists. It's like he's been through some stuff. So I think it's easy to feel for Tony Stark. <laughs> for sure. I think the other thing to notice too is he, and correct me if I'm wrong on this one, but he is one of the most human superheroes to my understanding so in terms of his superpowers they're all fairly external to him outside of his you know his genius and his brilliance right sure yeah there's a there's a difference when we're talking about ptsd a lot of it has to do with how your nervous system and i don't know a lot about the nervous systems of superheroes but it has to do with how much of a threat your nervous system is interpreting right so if your body is able to handle increased levels of stress, right? Maybe for particular superheroes, fighting a cloud of aliens is not an abnormal experience. But for a human (laughs) with normal human capacity, it would make sense to me that the fight, flight, or freeze mechanism in his body would respond a little bit differently. That's an interesting thought, like trying to diagnose a different character, such as like the Incredible Hulk, whose body (laughs) and nervous system are, are... presumably incredibly different than a than a human being um (laughs) i don't know but tony stark being like the most human of all i mean it doesn't seem like out of the question to compare him like even though he's a fictional character to a human being who's experienced enduring trauma yeah the avengers are basically split between superhuman and not tony clint and natasha hawkeye and black widow are just people and then there's thor who's a norse god captain america with the super soldier serum in him, the Hulk, who has his own. Actually, I, I do want to do an episode on dissociative identity disorder because he has a split mm. personality that's much more visible than most, I imagine. Also with Natasha, in terms of attachment trauma, we could talk about that for a long time. I feel like this is a whole second podcast that could happen because Thor goes through this depression and things during Infinity War and Endgame and working his way out of it. I think the psychology of Marvel be a whole other show there you go world somebody else take that (laughs) okay so there are these two scenes in particular where tony strongly reacts to mentions of the events in and above new york city you can just say new york in the first a little kid gets him to sign a picture of iron man that he drew the crayon and the kid asks him really quiet and kind of in that way that movies make little kids sound a little creepy tony's heart starts racing he stumbles out the door into his iron man suit has the suit check his vitals His AI assistant, Jarvis, who's going to feature in the next episode, tells him... No sign of cardiac anomaly or unusual brain activity. My diagnosis is that you've experienced a severe anxiety attack. Caitlin, first question to you. How do you feel about AI diagnosing people? Does that weird you out? I did a master's in social work, and I'm not a psychologist, but I did take a class on the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistics. And some small part of me does feel like, obviously, you know, clinicians have their different perspectives on on various symptoms and like presentations of clients and such. But in a way, I mean, it's it's sort of a black and white diagnostic system. I mean, I wouldn't want AI diagnoses, you know. <laughs> but I mean, to some extent, like, I think that there are psychiatrists and psychologists psychologists out there who aren't very like nuanced about their diagnosis and like Kelsey said you know like do it for the insurance or whatever and like aren't necessarily taking the human approach so I don't know it doesn't like scare me to imagine it 
being like kind of a you have a blah 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 you know because there's it doesn't <laughs> matter the voice of a speaking <laughs> spell <laughs> medically is actually it's happening already I, I worked for a healthcare IT company and one of the things they always touted was their sepsis detection system basically where it would take in all the vitals and could then raise an alarm with the hospital staff saying this patient has a high likelihood of having sepsis right now it was basically diagnosing the patient it would feel comfortable to me, I think, as a patient to get this, like, you have a likelihood of X, see a physician, see a human, see a psychologist, or psychiatrist. But I think if we stop it at Jarvis, that would make me more nervous, probably, particularly of mental conditions that are probably going to be harder to see for an AI. When you asked that question, I was thinking more along the lines of, like, mental illness versus, like, things like sepsis. That concerns me less. If you're looking at physiological response, although, I mean, obviously, like Kelsey was saying, there is, like, a level of somatic consideration, you know, in in diagnosing these mental illnesses too, or mental health disorders. It could be a starting place. I could be convinced that there's a place for AI, but I wouldn't want Jarvis like diagnosing my clients. (laughs) (laughs) Kelsey, those physical symptoms sound like a lot like what you were talking about. Do you think that it's possible to show some of the more subtle, I guess, internal symptoms on screen? I would say we're definitely guessing. We could probably ascertain that, but probably not in order to give a diagnosis, if that makes sense. It reminds me of like coughing. In a movie, the only way to show somebody is sick is either their hair falls out or they cough a spot of blood on a white handkerchief. <laughs> For PTSD, the only way we see it is a panic attack. That's the only way right. that like they or can a communicate. Flashback, that. I feel like, is a really right. Yeah, one. they have to show the physical symptoms for us to get the point, I suppose. Well, and I think with PTSD too, what he was exhibiting is not far off. So the symptoms that I saw him experiencing and that you could actually see or were explicit. I mean, he was sweating, right? You could see the perspiration on his forehead. You could see that he was obviously triggered by the original event. He's, you know, clasping his chest. So you could tell he's having some sort of chest pain. He looked dizzy. He needed to sit down, right? Fear of losing control. He said, I'm going crazy, you know, those types of things. And then we saw the nightmare that he had, flashbacks. We saw chills, hot flashes. So he's got at least four, right? He's got at least for that would qualify him for a panic disorder, potentially. However, what then disqualifies him from that diagnosis and actually might put him in the PTSD category are the specific and acute traumas that he's experienced. So I would be more likely to diagnose him with PTSD than I would a panic disorder. When another kid named Harley mentions New York and the aliens, Tony begins breathing quickly, panics, and literally runs away from the spot where they're talking and demands the kids stop asking questions. They have this exchange. Do you need a plastic bag to breathe into? Do do you have medication? Nope. Do you need to be on it? Probably. Do you have PTSD? I don't think so. Are you you going completely mental? I can stop. Do you want me to stop? And it was interesting to me that Tony said that he didn't think he had PTSD. Mm. Caitlin, what do you think about the instinct to deny that a problem exists? Like, if I don't give it a name, maybe it has less power? I mean, I think that there is an incredible level of stigma around especially I think this is my opinion and probably I mean honestly it's probably backed up in the literature but you know grown men I mean it doesn't surprise me that he would say no people don't want to admit that they have or have symptoms that align with a mental health disorder particularly big strong men like Tony Stark I would say that's absolutely true in my experience as well and yes I the literature does back that up there's a stigma against weakness 
right? So especially in our kind of white Western culture, there's a huge stigma against the idea of being powerless in some way. And so, yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all that someone with the level of ego that Tony has and kind of machismo that he would immediately dismiss the idea of having a panic disorder or PTSD. Yeah. And he did say, yes, I'm probably need medication. No, I probably don't have PTSD. That to me is also very interesting and something that I love slash hate to think about is medical versus therapeutic interventions and like who is open to what and why. Like it's just fascinating to me that he'd be like, yes, I need meds, but I don't have, you know, a problem. Like I don't have a diagnosable problem. That is interesting. I think maybe we subconsciously or consciously associate medication with, you know, physical symptoms. Mm -hmm. And the reason this is happening is because there's an imbalance. Right. I heard something about imbalances. So I'll take this thing and then the imbalance in my brain goes away and that fixes it because that makes it a medical mm-hmm. problem. For it's me. not an emotional deficit. It's a it's a physical yeah. one that can be fixed with science. And that's that's a tough thing in our profession as well is there's a stigma against trauma being a weakness in and of itself when neurobiologically trauma is actually the most adaptive thing that your body can do. It's helping to shut down and divert your systems from experiencing more pain. So it's what your body is actually intended to do. And so it's a really beautiful thing that we offer ourselves as opposed to this idea that experiencing trauma is somehow a deficit or dysfunctional. That's a very interesting way to think about that. That's fascinating. One of the defining features of Tony Stark, even before he went to space and saw the impending doom, is that he's kind of a workaholic, to put it lightly. In the first Iron Man, he pushes everything else aside once his guilt about the weapons manufacturing his company is doing gets to him, and he pours himself into developing the Iron Man suit. In Iron Man 3, it takes on a fever pitch when he starts upgrading his suits and making different versions of them. Pepper Potts thinks he's on version 15 of his suit, and he hides the fact that it's version 42. When confronted about how much he's working, he does get honest for a moment. I'm a piping hot mess. It's been going on for a while. I haven't said anything. Nothing's been the same since New York. Oh, really? I didn't notice that at all. You experience things, and then they're over, and you still can't explain them? Gods, aliens, other dimensions? I'm, I'm just a man in a can. The only reason I haven't cracked up is probably because you moved in, which is great. I love you, I'm lucky. But honey, I can't sleep. You go to bed, I come down here, I do what I know. I tinker. Caitlin, is that a thing you find yourself doing when stressed? Not, you know, building super suits, but I mean, jumping into your work or a project to distract yourself? I think that what you have just described with Tony Stark is next level, distracting yourself. Like that's what... (laughs) I'm pretty sure would would classify as avoidance in the PTSD criteria, <laughs> especially if he's like on version 40 and not on version 15 or whatever the outside world is thinking. I don't really do that. On the one hand, like when I do do something like that, I don't think that it's necessarily productive in that I'm not like doing projects and like making science, you know, like I'm like, oh, let me just doom scroll <laughs> through the internet. And that's my way of avoiding things. I don't think you're alone, Caitlin. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if I were like, if I had an IQ that was off the charts, like Tony Stark does, then maybe I would build suits instead. Kelsey, is that a common thing to me? It seems like if I distract myself with all this, then I can't think about my problems. Is, does that track with your experience? I think there's, there's two sides to the coin, right? There are the ways that we cope 
in embodied ways that are helpful to us, right? Things that we can do that help us to make sense of the trauma, help us to make sense of the story that we've lived. And we would call that an integrating exercise. So if while he's tinkering, he is also considering his early childhood trauma and how that might connect. And, you know, he's kind of nursing that particular line of thought. It could be really helpful to him. It doesn't sound like that's what he's doing. It sounds like there's a significant amount of avoidance. And yeah, that is super common. It is really difficult work. And this is why I absolutely feel that what I do is an honor. It is really difficult and painful work to look at the source of your pain, to look at the culminating effects of something that has been just really horrible and impactful on your life. And so the clients that do the work are heroic in my mind. And I I don't mean that as hyperbole and I am not exaggerating. It is nothing short of heroic to do the work of integrating and healing from your trauma. It requires a lot of energy. And so a lot of people avoid it. A lot of people choose other things. And not that that is cowardice either. If you don't feel like you have the capacity to address all of those things for whatever reason, maybe you're still going through trauma. Maybe you are trying to hold down four jobs and you don't really have time to lose it in your therapist's office once a week. Maybe that's just not an option for you. I think there are other important implications for not doing the work. So I certainly don't want to stigmatize that. What I do want to say is that those who are willing to make that a priority, it's incredible work to watch. That's really nice. I think one of the things people who are dealing with mental illness rely on a lot is their friends and family, their support networks. Mm -hmm. I know it's true for me, but baking, baking. (laughs) And also baking sometimes. Uh, <laughs> For sure. <That's... laughs> Excellent. Okay. If your friends are baking bread, ask them if they've talked to their therapist. <laughs> <laughs> but breaking those social barriers can be difficult in either direction. Mm. In the movie, Tony's friend Rhodey says to him, So last time you got a good night's sleep. Einstein slept three hours a year. Look what he did. People are concerned about you, Tony. I'm concerned about you. And Tony kind of lashes out pushing away that change in their relationship. He responds, You're going to come at me like that? Caitlin, what's it like for you when a conversation between friends starts out like, hey, how was your weekend? And somewhere along the line changes to, no, but how are you really feeling? How do you navigate that like gear change? Yeah, I mean, I think that my response to this question is probably a little bit like not average only because, you know, I'm not a mental health professional, but I am a social worker. And like the people that I surround myself with are probably more comfortable than the average citizen with like talking about our feelings and kind of digging deep pretty fast. So I think I almost feel relief when that happens in my own life. Mm. Like when we move past the superficial and, you know, it's sad to me and again like I know that Tony Stark is a fictional character but it's sad to me to hear that he said why you have to come at me like Mm -hmm. that that sounds very real to me people don't like to be confronted even if it's like called in versus called out Mm -hmm. on their you know struggles it makes me really sad that he would kind of like put his wall up there when clearly if I mean you know in whatever way this friend expressed it whether it was supportive or not that like okay Tony we know that you got some ish going on and you need help. I wish that society supported that in a different way and mm. allowed people to say, thank you. You're right. Mm. That actually relates to my question for Kelsey. And Kelsey, I want to be careful not to put you in a position where you're giving advice on a podcast. <laughs> Listeners, do not use this or any podcast for medical or psychological advice. I mean, obviously, we had an episode about talking tree people. That said, are there any general thoughts about how to approach a friend that's going through something that seems more serious? Do you like the way that Rody did that mm. or not? so much. Mm. I'm 
particularly keying into Caitlin's use of the word confrontational there. Mm. When he says, I'm concerned about you, people are concerned about you. That's a very direct way to say that. Yeah. You know, I, I would say if you, it's one of those, you know, if you see something, say something is going to be my, my general recommendation to pretty much anyone. And I get this question a lot, right? I have a friend that's struggling. How should I talk to him about it? I don't want to make him feel self-conscious, etc. And I got to say, if there is one thing that I have discovered in the course of my career, it's that no one wants to be left alone in their pain. And so it might be really difficult for them to talk about it. They might be caught off guard the first time that you ask or even aggressive or defensive, right? Especially if they feel like you're bringing something up that they're not capable of tolerating right now. But the fact that you're asking implies, I don't want you to be alone with this. And I really believe there is no greater good, no greater beauty that you could bring into someone's life than to tell them, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix it, but I don't want you to be alone with this. There's a really, I'm sure Kelsey, you've seen this and maybe Dave, you have too, but a really simple lovely YouTube video that's animated and it's a voiceover of Brene Brown talking about empathy versus sympathy. Oh, it's so cute. I make yeah. all my clients watch it. Yeah. <laughs> the animation is a person kind of meeting their friend where they are, climbing down into kind of a dark pit and saying, I don't really know what to say, but I'm just so glad you told me that you were struggling. Yeah. You don't have to know what to do. I think just being present and hearing yeah. the person's hurt is so so important and powerful. Absolutely. And actually the advice giving often shuts people down, mm-hmm. right? Saying, I think you should see a therapist or I think you need to go on medication, right? That type of advice giving, what it's really doing is you're soothing yourself. You're not really working to solve the person's problem. You're working to mitigate your own discomfort with the fact that your friend is having a problem. So being willing to recognize when your own defenses are up, you know, where is this really coming from? Next up, we have a segment in the show called, hmm, technically. Caitlin and I are going to keep quiet for two or three minutes as Kelsey gives us some nuance or details on anything related even tangentially to the topic. Kelsey, you have the floor. So I just, I watched the episode of Winter Soldier, the most recent, and there's the scene of Sam and Bucky being forced into this therapy session together. And it's interesting, my husband pointed this out. Bucky says something like, he was talking about Sam giving the shield away. And Bucky says to him, well, maybe Steve was wrong about you. And if he was wrong about you, maybe he was wrong about me. And I'm watching this beautiful moment of vulnerability of Bucky coming forward and saying like, I'm just really scared that maybe I'm not who he thinks I am. Sam totally missed it. (laughs) He kind of railroads it, ends the whole thing and walks out. And I think that's actually one of the things that we fear the most. That is one of the things that we're terrified of. We're terrified that I'm going to show you my broken parts. I'm going to show you just how deeply this thing has wounded me. And as soon as I do, you're going to leave. You're going to see that I'm screwed up. You're going to see that I'm too much or not enough. And you're going to go. And so when I'm thinking about anyone who is suffering from trauma-related disorders, I think the single most important part of moving that person toward healing is helping them to be seen, to be witnessed, to be known. And so in my profession, 
that's what I get to do every day. I get to be one of the people that helps to validate the pain that someone has experienced. I get to be one of the people that moves into that place, that sees the broken thing and says, I'm not leaving you. I see that. I see it all. And I'm not leaving you. We're going to move through this together. And even as the expert, I don't have all the answers, but I'm going to stay until we figure this out. And so when I saw the the end scenes with Tony talking to Bruce Banner and realized, you know, the whole movie is a narration and him working it through, I was simultaneously thrilled and sad because Tony is making sense of his story. He is looking to people who love him to not be alone. He is moving into this space of saying that my story matters and I need you to hear these parts because I want to consolidate it. I want to heal from it, right? And I'm reading, you know, significantly reading into this. And, you know, it's funny, but, you know, Bruce Banner's been asleep the whole time. I think that's one of the other things that I'm hopeful if anyone is listening that has struggled with panic disorder, has struggled with PTSD, is struggling, or maybe you're not, you know, to that level of diagnosis, but you're in pain for some reason. There's There are things that have happened in your life that are painful. I really want to encourage anyone listening to seek that out, right? Whether it's a professional or you have a trusted friend that you know can hold what you're feeling with you. Uh, isn't going to, you know, give you advice or try to fix it for you, but can really just sit in it and hold it with you, do it. It's risky. It's scary. It can be altogether terrifying, but it could also be life altering. And so that, that is one thing that I just want to leave listeners with. There's anyone in that space, call your therapist. (laughs) If you don't have one, email me. I'll help you find one. Thanks. That was great, Kelsey. Okay, Caitlin, close us out. What are your final thoughts here? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, I couldn't agree more with what Kelsey just said. And full disclosure, I have just connected with the therapist and I am thrilled. It has taken me a very, very long time to find find an opening, but... We're a little bit deaf right now. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's almost like there's some global trauma. I know. It's like the demand has increased 1,000 fold in the past calendar year. I also am biased because like one of my professional goals, you know, is the licensure potentially to become a therapist myself. And yeah, I think you just put it so beautifully, Kelsey. It's kind of amazing to think that someone out there could be listening to a podcast about Marvel comic people and, you know, (laughs) inspired to seek really meaningful like help and support that could change something for them. And then I guess my other final thought, and I think Tony Stark's experience in a way is really relatable to real life. Whether it's like a result of battling aliens or something really real, that it's not a stretch. Like this is stuff that real human beings experience every single day and and there are, you know, really meaningful ways to to change that reality. Without the reality stone. Boom. Butter, butter, butter. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I want to be clear as always that I love these movies. Scientific accuracy is not a necessary component for good storytelling. In fact, sometimes it gets in the way. I want to thank my guests, Kelsey Myers and Caitlin Levine for being on the podcast. Thanks for listening and cross your fingers. There's an episode 12. That's all for this episode. Thanks once again to my guests, Caitlin Levine and Kelsey Myers. Their care and grace with this sensitive subject means a lot to me. I'd like to ask you a favor. Share this episode with one friend you think would like it. 
And if you want to go a step further, I'll ask what every small podcast asks. Rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. MCU audio clips were taken from The Avengers, Iron Man 3, and yeah, an episode of Archer, and all used entirely without permission. The music is a song called On Tiptoe from Purple Planet Music. That song and more royalty-free music can be found at purple-planet.com. Check out more info about each episode and its guests, including upcoming episodes at davereinersman.com slash marvelsofscience. You can also find the podcast at patreon.com slash marvelsofscience. And now find me on Twitter at marvelsoscience, not of science, o science. See you next week, and thanks for listening. I, I drifted. Where did I lose you? Elevator in Switzerland. So you heard none of it? I'm sorry. I'm not that kind of doctor. I'm not a therapist. It's not my training. So? I, I don't have the... What, the time? Temperament.